Uh, we are entering into uncharted territory here because I have preached sermon series before that were as long as four weeks, as long as five weeks, as long as six weeks. But today is our seventh week of preaching through uh, a sermon series about the Holy Spirit. And I know I I'm clearly couldn't be more excited. Uh, but the reason is, is because we're seven weeks in and I feel personally, I feel like not only are we just scratching the surface of this topic, like we're, we're not even like digging really deep. You're going to have to do some of that at home and I'll talk about that in a second. But there's just so much more. And the more you get into this, the more it feels like, hey, this is what it's all about. Like it is all about God living, renewing, working in us. It is so crucial to who we are as disciples that I just, I feel like we could, we could preach about this for a decade and we wouldn't have exhausted the topic or we wouldn't have like gotten tired of it, at least me personally. If you've gotten tired of it, well, then maybe the Spirit needs to renew your fire for learning about the Spirit. So in this seventh sermon, we are in a new phase. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've been kind of working through the topic chronologically. So uh, seven weeks ago, um, we started with this ser a sermon about the Spirit from the very first pages of Scripture, the very first sentences of Scripture. Here's where the Spirit, here's what they thought of the Spirit. And we worked our way through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and then we got to Jesus. And we spent three weeks talking about the Spirit in Jesus and what we can expect to see in Jesus and how Jesus modeled the work of the Spirit. But today, now, if you're like seven weeks in and I haven't really heard any of them yet, that's okay, don't worry about it, because today we're actually just finally getting to the point where most people start talking about the Spirit. We've done a lot of background work, but today we're talking about the place where the Spirit kind of shows up. It's this like ground zero center point for the Spirit's work in the world. And uh, that may not sound exciting to you, but I think as we get into this, you'll understand why it's such a big deal. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Acts, turn them on, uh, update them, your app, Bible app, whatever you got, uh, and open it up to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1. This is one of those passages of Scripture you're like, yeah, I've, I've heard it before, maybe even kind of familiar with it, um, but there is so much going on in this passage of Scripture, a short little passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 2, uh, let's start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they, we'll talk about they in a second, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there's probably a couple little points in there where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've noted that before. The speaking in tongues part, that's interesting. We are going to get to that here in a few weeks. We're not going to talk about that much today, uh, but we're going to get to that. And I'm excited. I think you're probably, a lot of people are both excited and nervous uh, to talk about that. I think that'll be interesting. But I want you to notice a few things about this passage, just kind of as a whole. And I think we, it's fair to acknowledge this. First of all, this passage is strange. It's strange. The sound of a violent wind, uh, the spirit, the tongues of fire speaking in tongues. Like, it's a strange passage. And I think often we kind of do ourselves a disservice when we read Scripture. I mean, we've all done this, right? You've been reading something in the Old Testament. You're like, well, that's weird, and just move on. You know what, what, what? Wait a second. Why is that weird? What's going on? I think the strangeness has significance. And sometimes we just chalk it up to, like, well, it's something that happened 2,000 years ago, or they're using terms or categories I don't understand, but whatever, I'll just move on and talk about something else or think about something that feels more practical to me. 
But the strangeness is significant. It's important. We'll talk about why in a few moments. Secondly, the other thing I want you to notice about this passage is that this is the moment. This is the rock thrown into the pond causing all the ripple effects. This is, this is it. So there's so many points in life where, where we just spend weeks, months, years sometimes getting to a certain point. Maybe it's like graduating from high school or having a baby or getting married. There's all this stuff that works up to a point, like the point when you actually walk across the stage or the point when the baby actually shows up in the world and here it is. And the, the point when you actually say, I do, or when they pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. And then there's so much in life that springs from that. But there's these, these crucial moments in life that are both built up to and, the, and then a lot of life results from. But this is the moment in Scripture where the Spirit enters the world in this way. And there's just so many ripple effects from it. But it's the moment. Um, and third, the third thing I want you to notice about this passage is that it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's a sample. It's a, just a taste. It's like when you go to... Um, uh, grand old creamery and, and you're like, well, I want to try that, but I don't know if I want to commit to a whole you know, like bowl of it. So just give me a little spoon. Well, we're just going to get a little taste here. And there's so much more for real. Like as I'm working on the sermon, this is, I mean, often this is true where you're, you're preparing a sermon and it's like, there's so much I just got to not put in my sermon or we're going to be here for hours, but then it's good stuff, right? So this week, what I did is I tried to take all that good stuff, at least I think it's good stuff, and I, I compiled it into a document. It's there on the back table. It's all the extras. So think of it like a DVD extras. You know, you get to see behind the scenes. It's a bunch of extra verses, a bunch of extra moments, a bunch of extra things that I, I was fascinated by. I, want, I would want to know if I were studying this topic, but we couldn't get to in this, uh, in, in this time that we have. So that's on the back table as well. All right, let's, uh, let's go back through this passage and let's break this down just a little bit so we have a really good sense, so that we can walk out of here confident that we have a good sense of what this passage is talking about. It's weird, but I think that we can know what's being said. So let's start with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came. Pentecost. It's an interesting word. It's a little bit different. Well, what is that? Now, most of us have a category of Pentecostal, and that's sort of a brand or a flavor or a subcategory within Christendom of people who have specific doctrinal views about the Spirit and the way the Spirit works, and of course it comes from this passage. But the term Pentecost actually predates Pentecostal. It meant something else before it meant sort of a, a subcategory of Christianity. It was actually a holiday. So it was, it was a festival. It was a harvest festival. So when we think about like, hey, we get to celebrate the holidays, we're thinking about like things like Thanksgiving and Christmas. For them, this was one of their big religious holidays. It was a big deal. In fact, it was, it was a pilgrimage festival. So you know how at Thanksgiving and Christmas, they're kind of pilgrimage holidays because you go back to grandma's house or you go see mom and dad or you go hang out with the cousins. You go somewhere or people come to where you are. In this case, Pentecost was celebrated in Jerusalem because you brought your harvest, your first, first fruits of the harvest to the temple to sacrifice to God saying, hey, thanks God for the great year or in preparation for the great year. And everybody comes to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, the, the uh, scholars I read this week went from um, whatever their population was, there were estimates very wildly, but it like quintupled the population of Jerusalem. Can you imagine? 
It's like, it's like the, you know, the, the main Saturday of the state fair, just wall-to-wall people, but that's the whole town. I mean, you couldn't get, like, the stores are sold out of everything. Every hotel room is sold out. Like, people, no joke, people literally were camping in the streets. Like, it was just jam-packed with humanity, and that's kind of important to the story of Pentecost as you get further down into it. Um, so before we read verse 2, though, I want to draw your attention to something that the Bible does that I don't know we think about very often. Um, when you're watching a, a movie, when you're watching a new movie, um, the directors in those movies often do things to cue you to what's happening in the movie. Even though you've never seen it before, the directors will signal to you some of the action that's starting to take place. So, so for example, like if you're watching The Sound of Music, maybe you've never seen it before, but there's this big wide shot of these Austrian mountains and there's, you know, Maria pre-von trap, whatever she was, and she's spinning and singing on the mountain. Like, is that a happy moment or, or a sad moment? Like, it's a, it's a happy moment, right? It's a good moment. Like, you, you, the music is swelling, it's bright, it's outdoors. I mean, it's a good thing. Um, when Clint Eastwood squints his eyes at you and he's got his holster, his gun holstered by his side, like, is something about to happen? There's a buildup to, like, a, there's going to be a, a shootout. Like, Clint Eastwood's going to win, right? They're going to play that, like, do-do-do-do, whatever that noise is that they play in the old westerns. Um, I mean, that noise is, but you're, you as a viewer, you may have never seen that movie before, but you're like, oh, something's about to go down. You know, E.T. when he flies, you know, in the basket and the kid's bike and they go across. I mean, that's a good moment. There's swelling music. The directors are telling you, hey, pay attention here, because even though you don't know the story, I am helping you understand. I'm giving you a framework with which to understand how the story unfolds. If it's a gloomy scene set in a cemetery, you start to get tense. You don't know what's going to happen, but you know the director's telling you something's happening here. Something's about to go down. Something's about to get a little frightening and you tense up because they're building up. There's dissonant chords. There's minor chords. They're building up what's happening, the action in the story. Scripture does the same exact thing. Scripture takes moments from within Scripture and reframes them in other parts of the Bible to help you understand exactly what's happening in that story. Now, there are dozens of examples of this. We are going to look at one related to our text today. So if you rewind about 1,500 years from this moment in Acts chapter 2, from the room that these folks were in, and you rewind 1,500 years, you're going to come to a moment where the entire Hebrew people were at the base of Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, there's this incredible story in the book of Exodus. I'm going to read an excerpt here in a second. But God is meeting his people for the first time. The people are meeting God. God's redeemed them. He sent Matthew to go, or Matthew, he sent uh, Moses to go get them. That would be an interesting twist on the story. He sent Moses to go get his people, and he's brought them through the Red Sea. He's brought them partially into the wilderness to the base of Mount Sinai, and they're going to establish a relationship. They're going to have a, they're a covenant relationship here. So they're at Mount Sinai, and a bunch of interesting things happen. This is a significant location in the story and God likes to make an entrance he likes to show up Exodus chapter 19 verse 16 I'll read it for you on the morning of the third day there was thunder and there was lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast I love that the text says very loud as if trumpets aren't loud enough on their own everyone in the camp trembled verse 17 then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. And in the course of the story, the people are like, Moses, you go ahead and you meet with God. We'll stay back here. Just tell us what God's like because it's terrifying. But there's all these elements. God is showing up and there's these fireworks and noise and smoke because God is showing up at a place. Fast forward in the story, um, 900, I wrote it down exactly because the Bible tells us, um, 493 years, and you get to Solomon's temple. And it's called Solomon's temple because up to this point, God had been kind of, he'd been tent camping. For those of you that like that, God evidently likes tent camping for almost half a century. He had been living in a tent, moving around. Things had never been settled. And David was like, God, I need to build you a house. And God said, no, 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 David, you're not the man. Your son's going to do it. Solomon spent 13 years gathering materials, building this ornate building for God. And the construction's going on just fine, but it takes a while. And then finally Solomon's like, okay, we're ready. And let's gather up, gathers, invites the whole nation to come. And Solomon says this big prayer. And when he finished praying, this is Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, when he's dedicating this temple, fire came down from heaven. Fire, that sounds familiar. That also happened at Sinai. Oh, 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 so when God shows up, he really likes to make an entrance, huh? He slams that door open. Fire came down from heaven. And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Earlier in Chronicles, it says the clouds filled the temple as well, which I think is the same thing. Two, the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. It was too much. Verse 3, when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces on the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. He had showed up. He had, he had filled this place. He had filled this house. So you have, you have the same, you see the same kind of rhythm, the same thing going on. There's Sinai and then there's the temple. And when God shows up, he just really likes to make an entrance. Now, these are just a couple of these uh, examples. There are dozens more. That's part of that document that I have in the back if you want to dig into all the other places where God references him showing up in some of these same terms. But for thousands of years, God had this address. And then you get to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 2. This is a nondescript room in Jerusalem. It's a national holiday, wall-to-wall people outside, but God, Jesus' apostles are crowded in this room. They're praying. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the howling of a violent wind. And people who knew the story about Sinai, knew the story about the temple, they're like, okay, I, begin to, I know what's going on here. From heaven filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be fire. This fire began to descend just like it had in these other stories and these other examples. These tongues of fire. And they separated. Well, that's a little different than what's happened before. They separated and came to rest on each of them. Instead of the glory, instead of the, the smoke and fireworks and the descending on the, the, the location, it separated and descended on the people. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And it's just again and again, the same story, the Mount Sinai, the temple. But now you have something different. Because for thousands of years, God had an address. If you wanted to get to the temple... To, to meet with God, you Google mapped one Jerusalem way, Temple Mount, 
Beverly Hills 90210 or whatever. Yeah, I don't know what the rest of the address would be. But you, you went to a location. In fact, if you really were serious about praying to God, you prayed in the direction of the temple because that's, that's where God was. And we want God to hear our prayers. And so scripture talks about many times, numerous times, of, and it was a custom to pray in the direction of the temple because we want, to, we want God to hear our prayers. God was at a location. It was a location, location, location. I mean, yes. They understood God knew everything was everywhere. David had talked about that. Where can I go from your spirit? He had talk, But there was a place you went to worship God. There was a place you went to be with God. There was a place you went to commune with God. There was a place you went to hear from God. It was a place. He lived at a temple. But something's different happening here. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated. That's new. And came to rest on each of them. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. God lives in a place. He lives in a location. And you seem to be implying here, Luke, in this passage that God is coming to live in people. This, there was no category for this. Like we may get this because we have thousands of years to build on it. But there, for them, there's no category for what is happening here. One of our members at the first service has a mother who is turning 100 years old today. 100 years old. So I was thinking about like, he told me this a few days ago, and I was thinking about like, wow, in 1931, see how good I am at math, she was 10 years old. Imagine if you had that 10-year-old and you were trying to explain what would happen in the next 90 years. And you said, well, hey, guess what? Uh, 90 years from now, w there's going to be uh, a billionaire who launches rockets into space. And they would be like, what's a billionaire? Uh, and there, nobody can go to space. Like, they don't, I mean, it, you would be like, hey, 10-year-old, uh, guess what? There's going to be driverless cars. Driverless cars? What are you talking about? Like, I'm not even sure that cars are going to be really catch on. We're still going to ride our horses around. Driverless cars. If you tried to, like, say, hey, 10-year-old, here's an iPad. It has a touchscreen. It does a lot of, that 10-year-old would have no concept, Right? I mean, that's crazy to think about the things that have happened in just 90 years, the things that don't have a category to, to fit. They don't have a place to fit. It's, uh, it's Jeff's birthday today. You're turning 50, what, something, 50-something? Uh, Jeff and I, I think, are the same age today, actually. But even just thinking in our very short lifetimes, some of the things that have transpired in just the last 29 or so years. Like, it's just kind of amazing to think about all the innovative things that we, re we become totally reliant on. They didn't have a category. God lived in a place. You prayed toward a temple. You sacrificed in a temple. And now you're telling me that God, the holy, almighty God, is going to descend from the heavens and he's going to take up residence and people? I don't know about that. That's unbelievable to think about. It's crazy to think about. In just a few verses, Peter gets up and he explains because all this noise and uh, uh, activity has drawn a crowd. I mean, there was a crowd already, but it's drawn a crowd. And so Peter says, hey, everybody, listen up. This is what's happening here. And he quotes the book of Joel to these people. Of course, they had read the book of Joel, but still, this didn't compute. In Acts chapter 2, verse 16, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
uh, Peter, I don't know that uh, you really mean what you just said. Because, yes, God's spirit does show up, and he shows up in people like Abraham and maybe Isaac, maybe Jacob. He shows up in people like King David, and he shows up in special people for a time to accomplish a task. But all people, I don't know that you know what you're talking about. No, all people. He says your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And it's very important to the text. That's not an addition to the text. That's not a translation. He says your sons, and people are like, well, yeah, guys, but and your daughters will prophesy. And then he goes on, he talks about in the, in the next verse, he says, your, uh, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. He's very specific there. Did you know, just pause here. Did you know that in the temple, the temple where God was, they had these different courts and they had the court of the Gentiles. And if you weren't a Jewish person, that's as far as you could go to the holy point, the central point where God was. And then they had a court uh, of the women. And they ever, well, and it wasn't just women that could go there, but women were allowed to go there. And then you have a court of the Israelites. But guess what gender was not allowed to go? <laughs> women were not allowed to go there. And then you get even deeper and you have the holy of holies and nobody was allowed to go there except for once a year on a very special occasion. The, very, the place where God was, nobody was allowed access. And God is saying, I'm coming for everybody everywhere. That's what this is all about. That's what's happening. I'm fulfilling what we've been talking about for thousands of years, all the way back in the book of Joel. And there's like, what is God? Is God is supposed to be at a place and you're telling us he's in a people, in, a, in sons and in daughters? I mean, where are we supposed to go worship, Peter? And Peter's like, anywhere. Well, what, what direction do we pray when we pray? You don't have to pray any direction. Well, how do we offer sacrifices? Your life is a sacrifice. I mean, well, where's the holy of holies, Peter? You are the holy of holies. It was, a, it was a sea change. It was completely unbelievable. It's an incredible idea, and it's one that we completely take for granted, and we hear about it even this morning. We're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. It's nice. We don't understand the significance of what has taken place in Acts chapter 2. What, it, what it's like to, to, to know that the Spirit of God comes and resides within us. Now, this may be lost on us. And this is good. Let me say this. Let me just say it so just in case anybody's unclear. The Spirit of God now lives in the people of God. That's the point. That's the point of Acts 2. The Spirit of God now lives in the people of God. And, and we'll talk about what that means here in just a second. But this is really important. This is really crucial. And it just is right over, uh, right over our heads. Now, it may be lost on us, but it was not lost on uh, people in the first century. Uh, here's a little fun Bible trivia for you, those of you guys that really like this kind of stuff, which is maybe nobody. But what was the arrest charge? When Jesus was arrested, what, what was on the, the warrant for his arrest? I don't know if they had warrants, but what was the actual charge against him that they arrested him for? Does anybody remember off the top of their heads? Well, well, it wasn't because he, you know, save us from our sins. That's why he died. But why did they arrest him? Why did they kill him? It says it repeatedly in the Gospels, but Mark chapter 14, because he claimed he was going to destroy the temple, the place of God. Because you didn't need it anymore. Because the temple wasn't going to be worth, it was just going to be a, a place. But it was, God was going to be everywhere. And Jesus knew this wasn't going to be, this is not what it's about anymore. And so they arrested him for that. That was the actual charge. Uh, did you, do you know why Paul, the apostle, was arrested in Acts chapter 21 when he finally went to Jerusalem? You know what they arrested him for? This man said, he speaks against this place. He speaks against this temple because 
Paul was trying to say the Spirit of God doesn't live here anymore. He's everywhere for everyone. And they just couldn't handle that. Stephen, the very first martyr, five chapters from now, do you know why they killed Stephen? (laughs) Take a wild guess, right? You know why they killed him? He, it literally says in Acts chapter 7, verse 48, the most, Stephen says, the most high, the God of gods, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, does not live in houses made by human hands. And they're like, you, that's blasphemous, man. And, and Stephen, how bold was this guy? He made that claim standing in the temple to the people that controlled the temple. And so it was kind of a big deal. I mean, good for him, but man, no wonder. And then in verse 51, he says, Stephen, to these same people, you stiff-necked people. This is people who, you hard-hearted people. You always resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to come live in you, and you resist, you resist, you resist. And then they killed him. They killed him for it. See, the deal is, if God is somewhere, if God has an address, well, then the people who are in charge of the gates have a lot of power. They can decide who's good enough to get in to see God. They can decide who's really pure enough, who's really qualified. They can decide what nationality or gender can really get access to God. They can decide who gets to see, who gets to have an audience with God because God is at a location and we can keep him distant from everybody. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of control. But if God is everywhere and for everyone, well, then that power is all of a sudden gone and it's a real threat to these folks and it's no wonder they killed Jesus. It's no wonder they killed Stephen. It's no wonder they eventually killed Paul because they were threatening that reality, that power, that control, because they wanted to seize control. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, Patrick, fine. I'll grant you that's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. Neat about Sinai, neat about the temple, neat about Acts 2. I'm glad God lives in me. That's wonderful. I'm glad the Spirit of God is in me. But all right, this is the thing, everybody, what does that practically mean? I mean, you're talking about all this abstract doctrine, but what does it actually mean? What does it really mean? How is this going to change my Sunday afternoon? Because my plan is to go home, eat a little too much, and then nap it off. I mean, what is this going to actually change about my life to know that God is living in me? Where do we start? How much time do you guys have? Um, A few weeks ago, months ago maybe, the electricity went off at our house. And it was just me and uh, my little guy, Liam, and my oldest daughter, Taya. I don't know, Karina and Avery were somewhere else. But it was me and, me and Liam upstairs, electricity went off. Taya was fine. She was in her bedroom. Uh, and me and, and Liam was, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn, but you were a little nervous about the lights going off. Yeah, that's fair to say. He was a little, little wound up about it. And I'm like, no, no, buddy, this is fine. We're going to have fun, you know. I was trying to make, this is me always looking at the silver lining. We're going to have a blast, buddy. You know what? Hey, let's have a... Let's have a movie night. I'll go downstairs, turn on the TV. We'll have a movie night. And oh, wait, wait. Sorry, buddy. We can't do the TV thing. Uh, You know what? My laptop has a battery. We're going to turn on the laptop. We're going to watch a movie. We'll log on to Netflix, watch something. Oh, wait a second. Wi-Fi uses electricity. Okay. Uh, No, that's a no-go, buddy. We don't have any Wi-Fi right now. Um, Okay. Uh, Here's what we're going to do, buddy. We're just going to old school. Hey, we'll pop some popcorn. We'll hang out by the candlelight. I mean, that'll be fun. So go to the cupboard, grab a bag of microwave popcorn, and then, oh, wait. Oh, man, buddy. Uh, microwave's not going to work. You know what? We're going to do this old school style like our pioneer forefathers did. And we're going to pop that. You know, you can pop this over a stovetop. Did you know that, buddy? How cool is that? Go over to the electric stovetop and like, oh, no, the electric stovetop doesn't work either. Oh, no, Liam, we're going to die. We don't have any food. This is it. 
I didn't, you know, you forget how reliant you are on electricity when you don't have it. Uh, somebody at the first service was telling me afterward that uh, there's actually like, like if other countries, if they plan on attacking one another, the first thing they hit is like the electrical infrastructure because then we're like, okay, we give up. Just give us some juice, you know, like you can have the country as long as you give me an outlet to plug my phone in. We're just so dependent on it, so reliant on it. You, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are so reliant on the Spirit you don't even realize it. You don't even realize it. And there's so much that we don't take advantage of, and there's so much that we take for granted, but we are so reliant. Let me tell you this. Um, I'll make this fast. I won't, I won't belabor the point too much. But I grew up uh, uh, in the church, and, and when I heard about this topic was addressed. Hey, Patrick, you know the Spirit of God lives in you. God lives in you. You're, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. 99.9% of the time that they told me that, they said, and here's the application, don't smoke or do drugs. That was, that was it. That, okay, well, that's great. So God lives in me, so I should not smoke or do drugs. Okay, that sounds good. And that's true. We probably shouldn't smoke or do drugs because the temple of God lives in us. That's true. But that's like, that's like a tiny fraction of the way that this should apply to our lives. And it was funny because the people that taught me often were people who like would eat Twinkies and drink Mountain Dew with, you know, dipped in gravy. And it's just like, I mean, literally, how many of you grew up eating at fellowship meals where they would put a jello mold and some canned fruit in this mold and then call that a salad? That was a salad. Well, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but that only applies to drugs and smoking, but not this jello mold that I'm, you know, clogging my arteries with. Well, wait a second. That's great. I don't, I don't care. Eat, don't eat jello, do eat jello. But that's not the point. The point is it's like maybe a minute fraction of what it means to have the Spirit of God living in you. If that's the only application, you are way missing the point. The authors of Scripture made a case over and over and over again for what it should look like to have the Spirit of God living in you. And it is a wide-ranging appeal to your life, your holiness, your, your relationship with sin, your spirituality. I mean, they literally, like Paul literally talks about, hey, you, the Spirit lives in you, therefore you should ha live with sexual integrity. Literally says that. And then later, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, I've got the quotes on the screen if you want to look at them, 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians chapter 2. Literally, Paul says, if the Spirit of God lives in you, guess what? It also lives in them. You can't be racist. That's the point he's making. You can't be racist against Jewish people or Gentile people because they are part of the temple of God. That's how wide-ranging the application of what the Spirit living in you actually means. Let me, let me give you a snapshot of, uh, of what I'm talking about. Here's a short list of the fine print of what the Spirit of God living in you means. And I, I just went through, the, this is just the New Testament. I just went through every New Testament passage starting in Romans. Jesus talks about it too, but we've already covered that. Starting in Romans, going through the book of Revelation, every time it talks about the Spirit being in you, what, are, what is happening? What can the Spirit provide? What can the Spirit do? What takes place? And if you want to, you don't have to write those down. I've got those on that sheet of paper as well because there's so many good references. And I went the extra mile of double-checking every single reference because half the time I get a one wrong or a two wrong and people call me later and say, what's, I double-checked every single one. They're all correct. But this is what the Spirit does in us. This is the promise of the God living in us, the power and presence of God. So what does this mean? Let me sum all this up in one statement. 
It means this, that whatever it is that you are looking for in your relationship with God, whatever like renewal, refreshing, whatever what transformation, whatever joy, peace, patience, kindness, whatever it is that you are looking for in your relationship with God likely is provided by the fact that the Spirit of God, the power and presence of God lives in you. Oof. You know, I, I am just not sure that we have adequately reflected on, appreciated, or taken advantage of the power and presence of God living in us. We're just utilizing the Spirit maybe to a fraction of the capabilities that God has given us to, to be better versions of ourselves, to be more like Christ, to let the Spirit of God be the wind that fills our sails, to be the, the breath that fills our lungs so that every thought is guided and led by the Spirit of God, so that every word that proceeds from our heart is manifested by the Spirit of God, so that every choice, every interaction, our, our, our parenting, our employment, everything that we do is, is empowered by the presence and power of God living in us. I think we've been like, oh, cool, Spirit of God lives in us. What's for lunch? Man, we've got some, I, I, honestly, we've got some repentance to do for this amazing gift that God has given us. And we've just kind of like let it sit dormant in our lives. But this gift that he has given us that is in us, wow. All right. As I prepare these sermons, I've just, I've, it's a different process because I'll just get to a point and I'll be like, well, that's all I can fit in about, you know, 30 minutes or 35 minutes or whatever the sermon length is. And I just got to stop. So here we are. We're just going to stop. There's a lot more we could talk about, but we're just going to stop here because you've got other things to do. And we're going to talk about it uh, some more next week. We're going to talk about other things that we see the Spirit doing in the book of Acts. It's just Unbelievable, incredible. The book of Acts should be called the book of the Holy Spirit because it's all about the Holy Spirit. It references the Holy Spirit more than any other uh, book in, uh, in the New Testament. It's unbelievable. But we just have to stop because we could go on forever. If you want to dig in more like I did, grab one of those papers on your way out. I was so pleased they, uh, the papers ran out at the first service. So I don't know which service is more spiritual. I'm just saying they ran out at the first service and I had to print more. So... Uh, anyway, we're going to say a word of prayer, and then uh, we're going to let you be dismissed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful um, for, the, for the gift of the Spirit in us. God, I, I can't even imagine the fullness of what that means, even as I get excited about the concept. God, I, 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 on behalf of every person in this room, I repent for us for just allowing that gift, allowing that tremendous blessing to just be, be taken for granted. Lord, I pray that you would stir up in us the power and presence of the Spirit in us. Lord, as we leave this place today, I pray that we would be fully aware of every thought, every choice, every habit, everything that we do. And I pray that the wind of our sailboat would be filled with the Spirit. I pray that the breath in our lungs would be the breath of the Spirit. I pray that you would transform us into the image of your Son by the power of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>